I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the state of the rally as stocks look to keep the momentum going. We're going to get the investment committee's take on where the markets are likely to go from here. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Shannon Sakosha, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss. Check the markets for the highs of the day. Dow's good for about 140. See the S&P. We'll see if it makes a run back towards 4,400. It was on the doorstep, pulled back yesterday afternoon. We broke the streak there. We broke the nine-day streak, Weiss, for the NASDAQ. You know, the bond auction was bad yesterday. Yields spiked, and Powell spoke an hour after that. Deemed more hawkish than what he was on Fed Day. We'll show you, he wasn't really. We'll show you that in a moment. But it's, it's obvious that the market's gonna be dragged by yields. Yeah, absolutely, and that's been the case. There's been a pretty good correlation, pretty high correlation with yields. Look, I, as, uh, I think we've got some respite now from, from major auctions over the next couple of weeks, but uh, that's gonna be the story. There's plenty of more supply to come, and when you've turned China and Japan our biggest holders into net sellers, or at least less interested in buying debt, then uh, you're going to see more auctions like this. Look, I think the market right now, near terms, is going to trade in CPI and PPI next week. And if those numbers show continue uh, relief from inflation, market will continue to rally. Uh, you know, Powell, I think, struck sort of a neutral tone, slightly more hawkish than perhaps the market wanted. And that, in conjunction with what yields did, caused the pressure yesterday. Plus, let's not forget, we were on a very long streak, so a bit overbought. Yeah, exactly. So, it was sort of yeah. primed. Yeah, it was for, pri- yeah. primed for a little bit of selling. It's just the, the bond auction really got the ball rolling on the spike in yields. I mean, you know, we made a bunch of walls and some graphics to show you exactly the difference in what the Fed chair said on Fed Day, November 1st, and what he said yesterday. And I'll show you those in a minute when we try and, you know, decipher whether it was really more hawkish or not, if we're really under the threat of another rate hike or not. How do you see it? I think he's trying to buy time. And if I were Jay Powell, that's what I would do, too, because he just needs to let this economy kind of play out. So he doesn't want to commit to anything, nor should he. We know that the market and the, the bond market, the economy, the stock market is doing a lot of work for him. So time is his friend. And if he can kick the can and be noncommittal, then that's what works. But when we're talking about, you know, rates are higher. That's why the market gave it up a little bit yesterday. Rates are lower. We, we need to say, we need to really remember why. Why when rates are higher does the market go down? Because when rates are higher, people are willing to pay a lower valuation on the market and vice versa. So even today, we're at 18 times. That's a pretty, pretty rich valuation. A couple years ago, when rates were really low, the best we got to was about 21 times. So we've got, a, I think we've got a limited upside here. And Jay Powell is just looking at it thinking, time's my friend. Let's let the market do the work for me. I mean, the, the market, you know, aside from the knee-jerk uh, pile-on from the, the bond auction, doesn't really think there was anything different because right. December, January, March, the probabilities, if, if we were to show you the, the, the bar chart there, they barely budged. We're talking teens, probabilities of, of another hike. But, but let's get to the, the idea that somehow the, the Fed chair was more hawkish yesterday and now we need to be on alert or somehow the goalposts have moved again towards the hike because yesterday he said, quote, if it becomes appropriate to tighten policy further, we will not hesitate to do so. Well, what did he say on Fed Day, November 1st? Evidence of growth persistently above potential could warrant further tightening of monetary policy. 
that's no different. Yesterday, inflation, quote, well above target, has a long way to go. On Fed Day, inflation still running well above our 2% target, has a long way to go, near word for word. Not convinced yet? Well, yesterday, not confident that the Fed has achieved a sufficiently restrictive rate. Ongoing progress to 2% goal, not assured. Well, Fed Day committed to achieving a stance of monetary policy that's sufficiently restrictive. Not confident yet that we have achieved such a stance. Again, near word for word. Meeting by meeting, said it yesterday. So we're going meeting by meeting. That's what he said on Fed Day. And finally, yesterday, we will continue to move carefully. Well, what did he say on Fed Day, November 1st? The committee is proceeding carefully. I think, Josh, it was this auction that got everybody unnerved. And then we're just looking for excuses uh, that somehow the Fed chair was, was more hawkish or not. Yeah, I think that's right, Scott. I would pay more attention to the auction for actual supply, demand, and market dynamics than I would to anything the Fed has to say. Recall that at the end of 20, uh, the end of 2018, the Fed was saying they are nowhere near finished hiking rates, and within 30 days, they would uh, begin the first of three rate cuts to start off uh, 2019. In September of 2021, the Fed's own forecast was that they would hike rates once in 2022. Instead, they ended up pursuing the fastest, steepest uh, rate hiking cycle ever in, in most of our lifetimes. And so that kind of stuff is not important to me. I think the market reacts to it temporarily and then very quickly everyone forgets and they just go buy Microsoft. That's the, that's the dynamic right now. So yeah, it's unnerving. We don't want to see uh, treasury auction that people don't bite. Okay, I agree. Um, but so far, none of those auction days have done lasting damage to the bigger uptrend that we're seeing in large cap tech. And that's really going to determine whether or not we finish the year strong, much more so than anything Powell has to say at this point. You know, Tony Pascarello, uh, Shan of Goldman Sachs, head of hedge fund client coverage, a couple of weeks ago, it put out a note on a, on a uh, Friday that said the path of least resistance was higher. Now, the, the market had a bit of an upset that next week, but, you know, we all then we, we know what's happened since we had a, had a big rally. He says today, quote, technicals for equities remain favorable. I believe the core interplay between the economy and the Fed is in a friendly enough place right now. While the path may well be uneven, I expect the S&P will ultimately grind higher into year end. You want to comment on that? Well, I think we've heard a lot about seasonality and positioning, and there's a number of people that have been on this program and others on the on the channel that have talked about, you know, the, the likelihood of a rally through year end. And, you know, when you think about what's changed from November 1st to today, it's been the amount of movement we've had higher in the equity markets. And so this skittishness about the auction or the perceived skittishness about Powell doesn't upset the fact that I think that we are in a in a in a short term period where people are looking to position their portfolios for year end. And to Josh's point, there hasn't been uh, really any change, I think, if you look at the full year on the flight to what has been perceived to be safer mega cap tech stocks, those have continued to be the place where people have fled to. So we've talked a lot about risk aversion. Are we going to see a risk off trade following uh, the invasion of Israel? Are we going to see a risk off trade based on expectations of a slower economy next year? Um, the risk off trade has been sort of mixed. We've been seeing you know money move out of long bonds but go into high yield. We've been seeing you know the Russell 2000 obviously uh, 
uh, experiencing significant weakness while, you know, we're still seeing crowding into names that have done well. So I think that this is more about positioning through year end. I think that if people are looking for the Fed to come and save the day for the bond market, that's not going to happen because you know what? The Fed is actually not not controlling, particularly the long end of the curve right now. And so if people are looking for Powell to come in, say one thing and decrease the rate volatility that we're experiencing, I think that's a naive expectation. I mean, why is the Fed, though, you know, is kind of your friend if they're done. Forget about the cuts. The cuts are going to come eventually. Right. But if they're done hiking, is that enough? If they're done hiking, does that take this from a a short term potential run just until the end of the year and then make it go into the into the new year if the Fed's done? Is that no, enough? I don't. I don't know. Uh, they're never going to come out and say they're done. No, but it's going <clears> to <throat> at some point it's going to be obvious if the let's let's put it this way. The data is going to dictate whether right. they're done, not right. Powell's words. The CPI release next week is going to help. Yep. And then you're going to get other inflation reads, right. you know, and if those come in favorable, the market's going to make a determination as Without to whether doubt. they're done. Yep. I, I, I agree with that. Um, and then so it's tell two cities, right? So there's the market and then there's the economy, regardless of whether the Fed's done. The economy's continuing to, I think, decline. And we see that in so much, not every single data point from the consumer, but I think the body of work of the data points clearly points to that, as well, as well as the commentary of the people that are sitting at the top of the food chain that know the heads of the banks, et cetera, see defaults and default rates, uh, activity and loans, et cetera. But then there's the market. So the market is a discounting mechanism. And the market, particularly over the last few years, have you seen a new group of investors mature into the market that are a lot younger than the typical group that have always seen V-shaped recovery since 2008, the Fed riding to the rescue, and easy money. That's mm-hmm. all they know. That may be the right thing. So what, what trumps what? I think for the, for, the, for the longer periods during the calendar, that it's that. That's the belief the Fed is done, that we'll get through these high rates, and that you know, the market's going to go up because the Fed will eventually cut. And then you'll get to earnings. And when earnings come out, I believe it's going to tell a different story. This earnings period was not a great earnings period, particularly relative to expectations. You may have seen the bottom line higher, but you also saw the revenue line was disappointing. So it's a coin toss, and I think right now, if you get CPI and BPI favorable, the market's going to continue to rally. Well, the other thing you need is the... The, the underbelly of the market right. needs to look better, right. needs to feel better, mm-hmm. uh, because it hasn't. Maybe. You know, the small, well, maybe. You're it's right. And it, maybe, maybe Josh is right. Maybe, maybe it's just maybe. I mean, the Russells looked bad. You know, Wolf talks about the deterioration under the surface today. But well, yeah. Ru- Russell's having its worst week. I know, but eventually, Josh, I think we need to improve on that front. Or you can only go so I far. Used- so, Josh, I used to believe in that. Josh answer, Rook. I'm sorry. Josh, go ahead. <laughs> I used to believe in that. The problem is, it's been <laughs> seven years since it's been true. So I don't know. I don't know anymore. I'm uh, I'm losing my religion on uh, internals lately. Yeah. So maybe we're at a turning point because I'm throwing in the towel. I know. Maybe, I don't maybe, know if anyone cares anymore. Maybe breath isn't as important as it once was. I, I don't know. I think in the long run it is. But, Josh, you brought something up that was really interesting yesterday when, when you guys were talking about small caps. Thank you, Jenny. And you, you're welcome, Joshy. And, um, and you gave all this history that one of your analysts did and said, like, look, 
once you know, once you get to these levels, the next year the small caps perform. And I, when you were talking about that, I was thinking if I look in my portfolio, the small caps actually look amazing, right? So when I'm looking at them from a fundamental perspective, I'm saying, wow, the valuations are at. It's where you kind of marry the fundamental and the technical analysis, so I'm looking at it fundamentally. And I think it's interesting because when you say they're looking bad, they're looking bad based on performance, but based on an investment. Well, they look terrible based on performance. Right. The question is whether they look like a fat pitch right now because within, their performance has been so bad. Right. And But then if I just look at it and say, like, hey, here's the valuation, here are the earnings prospects, here's the valuation relative to, like, all peers, all history, what the earnings prospects are going forward, the dividend yield, then I look at that and I say, oh, these are beautiful to me. So I think it's an interesting thing. Are you looking at them based on their investment prospects or are you based, looking at them based on their market returns? And those That's are two really point. different things. I, thank you. I, I, agree, I agree with that. And the other thing I would say is, you know, on CNBC, we tend to cover the stocks that are either uh, moving the most or the most widely held because that's what the audience wants to hear about, and those are the names we know really well. But if you look at a screen of the Russell 1000, and you just rank the, the companies that are, further, that are closest to an all-time high, so like the 52-week high list for large caps outside of the S&P 500, Roper Technologies, Lennox International, Gartner, Cintas, which makes uniforms, Republic Services, which hauls garbage, Motorola Solutions, the, these are companies from every industry. The only name on there that we talk about all the time is Microsoft. Every one of these other names, Deckers, McKesson, the, there are stocks in substantial uptrends making 52-week highs. We just don't get to them all, but we shouldn't present this market as, oh, it's just seven stocks. No, no, no. It's seven stocks that are really important. But there are plenty of names at all-time highs. We just aren't aware of them because they're not tip of our tongue. The question, but, though, Shan, Scott, is, is whether I, now I, is the time to, to like, take a serious look at small caps. I'm looking at a, a journal story today where Lori Calvacina, you know, a, a well-known voice from RBC who's on our network all the time, um, says performance of small caps usually bottoms three to six months before EPS forecasts start to move higher. And then there's some data about the S&P 600 in terms of where, the, where that's trading. The S&P 600 valuation is 12 times forward for the next 12 months, 12 times versus 18 times for the S&P 500. Yeah, and there was actually a time, Scott, way back in the day where small caps actually traded at a premium to large caps, um, right. if you can believe that. No, I mean, I, I think the other, the, both Jenny and Josh are making an incredible point about the execution for these companies. And I think what we're not seeing in the market, and in particular in, you know, sort of the small cap universe, is that companies have been executing better than expected. We've likely seen earnings trough already. What does that say to me? We also have, you know, average work, average hourly earnings are starting to come down on a year-over-year -year basis. We're not seeing the inflation there. We're going to see lower costs. We're going to eventually see lower rates. All of that speaks to the fact that there's actually huge amounts of margin recapture opportunity, particularly in small caps, because they are generally focused on 
the domestic economy. And I don't think anybody on the committee would argue that we're certainly the strongest house on a maybe a mediocre block in 2024. But I think you're right, Scott. You have to think about when does late cycle become early cycle. And it's going to be, and the smallest caps are going to start to participate. And maybe that's really when we talk about breath, what we should be really highlighting is that small caps will start to participate well before we start to feel like things are completely on the upswing from an economic perspective. The only reason we think we're late cycle-wise is because the Fed was raising rates to the degree that they were, so there was the assumption that it was going to crush the economy and put us into a recession. That remains to be seen. There is no proof at this point that we, in fact, are late as late cycle as some have suggested we are. Well, I think if you look at some of the data, which I was some of the companies that reported, that uh, we're going to, we, first of all, in terms of time, if you take the blip out of a couple of years ago where we supposedly started a new cycle, the cycle has gone for a very, very long time, an impressive long time. So just on age alone, common sense says you're late cycle. Right, but, but common sense right. doesn't include, you know, zero interest rates forever. And then right. common sense doesn't include boatloads of money falling from the right. sky. But, but let me get to some of the data. You, it's, it, it, it's, it's form shopping to pick out data points like you cited from, from the strategist, right? Because you don't know what those periods of what else happened to those periods. No, time. but it's a simple What's question. Are small caps a place to look right now because they've gotten I don't too think so. cheap? I don't think so. And earnings expectations for small caps have troughed. No, I, I, I don't think Bottom. so. I, because I still think it's going to be the seven. Josh had mentioned that there are plenty of stocks hitting their 52-week high. Let me just give you some numbers to that. For the new stock exchange, as of today, 24 52-week highs, 80 are at 52-week lows. For the NASDAQ, 28 are at highs, 244 at lows. So, no, it's not been brought underneath. No, it Und- hasn't. Underneath, so I still we, believe. We haven't said so, that it is. So, it's been so, anything but. but. So let me well, put this, let me, get, let me give my position this way. Basically, we're seeing the S&P equal weight relatively flat. It's up a little bit now. Two weeks ago, it was flat. I would not invest in the S&P equal weight. I still think you have to be in the companies that have momentum in earnings, momentum in fundamentals, and maybe they're a little higher value today than they were, like Microsoft. To me, that's still where you'll make the money. Meta's still where you'll make the money. You won't, make it, right. in, you won't make it in semiconductors. They'll trade up and down. But there's no real substantial evidence. As a matter of fact, to the other point, that the phone cycle is not coming back, PCs are not coming back, we see some data, I just don't think it'll happen. See, this you, is you where said, I, why don't you think he's right? Because I think we are, I think there was breath underneath the surface this quarter, and I saw it really, really specifically in my portfolio. So when you're saying semis and small caps, you're using such a broad brush, and I think if you I go more- I asked a broad brush question. Okay, but- I wasn't I think, asked about your portfolio. But I think if you go more granular, you see what's starting to percolate up, and that will actually swing like these- Like what? Okay, so- in, like, Yeah, no, I hear like you. A couple individual um, names don't- no, mean but I'm just saying, like, about broader breadth of, of the market. This which is I think what really smacked me in the all, face. All agree has has not been good. Okay, but here's what smacked me in the face over the past couple weeks. So, and I I might have talked about this before, but I had I had 3M, Nextera, Dow, 
Lamar Advertising, RDAW, all report at about the same time as Google, Microsoft, Meta, right? These companies reported net earnings, like fine in line. Their stocks were up huge. The 3M had gotten annihilated before they that. They all dog. have, and that's my whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. When you look at when you look at the S&P, when you look at the small cap trading at 12 times or 11 times, whatever Josh said, they've all been annihilated, right? So the whole thing is to sell high and buy low, right? So like, what do you get in small caps right now? You get the opportunity to buy low. I don't know, Steve, if you're right or wrong on semis. To me, there's like way too much individuality beneath the semi-surface, maybe on small caps. But I just think there's so many companies out there that actually did. And, and so it, so you can make broad brush things over I, I, the I'm not saying there's not but, value to be found. There's value to be found in every single market. I'm just but saying. But the big guys, like the big guys have nowhere to go from here. They're why do you say that? Because they're all trading at 25, 30 times earnings. Their earnings growth is mid-single digit for the most part. Not all of them, but for the most part. Mid-single digits? No. Mid to no, no, high no, single no, digit, no, no, like no, six, no, seven, eight percent. Judge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, right. I'm hold on. That's true. Of Apple. Hold on. Where do you get the others? Because for the tech sector, I'm going to go ahead. For the tech sector, earnings are expected to grow double digits through the next four quarters. Q3, 12.4. Q4, uh, 15. Point, I mean, uh, no, no, I saw that, and I saw this in the rundown. 15.1, 16, 11, 7, 12, Josh 1. Josh probably knows this. That's why. She- that's why people continue to buy these stocks because the earnings growth expectations are still better and more reliable than all of these other ones. Okay, that, I don't know what there. else is there in those numbers. And there is upside to but those expectations what's Amazon's, well. what's Amazon's growth expectations? What's Google? What, like, I know NVIDIA. Are you telling me you that, look at like, NVIDIA three, and it drags uh, the whole thing th- higher. Are 3M's earnings expectations projected to grow at a faster rate no. than mega cap tech? I'm saying when things are trading at six to 10 times earnings, there's an enormous margin of safety. So they don't have to grow at double digit to actually surprise to the upside. And so when you show me those tech earnings, I'm thinking to myself, okay, we know NVIDIA has an incredibly overweight position. And I'm like, what is that 12% dragged up by NVIDIA? I don't know off the top of my head. I wish I did. You know, pre-kids, I could remember stuff so much better. 3M is down almost 30% over, yes, over the last 12 but months. has it bottomed? Should we be buying low and selling high, and I think we should. I think if you look at the top seven, their their multiples are extended compared to their earnings growth. And and that's it. And I think those numbers, when you look at them broadly, are dragged up by right, NVIDIA. But the reason there's no conviction behind that is because people are afraid that they can buy low, even lower. Maybe. Conversely, but, at point, uh, but at some point it changes. Conversely, look at 2022 when it did. Okay, so, so their valuations are in excess of their earnings growth, granted. But that's because... But, but let me finish. That's because they continue to surprise the upside. They have, you know, basically, you know, moats around their businesses. They're leaders in the industry. Conversely, conversely, for Microsoft, Moats? it's true. For Meta, it's true. Yes, for conceptual yeah, moats, everyone's coming from okay. Nvidia's Conversely, conversely, with a 3M, that's a commodity business. By and large, by and large, those companies will not grow. And they are selling essentially now at their growth rates and they go lower. Josh, go ahead. First, it's not just mega cap tech with earnings growth like that. Um, there's a whole second layer of tech stocks making 52 week highs with great results and 30 to 40% revenue growth in the past. We think lower revenue growth in the future, of course, but we don't know necessarily. And even revenue growth that's 15, 20% expected going forward is way faster than the average stock, and that's why they're outperforming. CrowdStrike, AMD, 
Uber, look at these stocks are making 52-week highs, not because it's mediocre results. It's way better than anything 3M has to say. There is a reason tech exactly. is as large as it is. It, there is a reason these stocks are outperforming this year. They had a horrendous 2022. I know because I lived through it. I was cut in half in Uber. I was cut in half in CrowdStrike. Right, but now Josh, they're you doubling this in the year. 20s. That's the whole point. You got cut in and half in Uber, the 40s. And then you but that's not what I'm saying. Ah, uh, okay. Mira, mira, mira. The reason, <laughs> the reason these stocks are outperforming is because their fundamentals are outperforming. It's not a mirage. It's not a mystery. They're, and they're growing point, really fast. Scott. And at some point, they're out of steam. And at some point, they're trading at the right Wait, valuation. Which I think they enter, like, I okay, think they enter 2022 at the right valuation. That's why they all got their knees kicked out from under them in 2022. Right now, it looks to me like they're back at the right valuation. And there's other stocks out there that are at the wrong valuation. So I, th I think that it's easier to buy a stock that's not teetering on the edge of a cliff and where you need to sustain stratospheric earnings growth. All right, so let's take a break. Up next, we'll do our call of the day. It's a triple play. The committee debating three stocks, three bullish calls there. Steve Weiss making some moves as well. We got the trades coming up next. as we just showed you in the market green across the board. Uh, so we'll see how this day progresses. All right, calls of the day. Netflix, target goes to 510 from 480, reiterated overweight JPM. We do that stock because I wanted to hear your take on Disney. It's our <laughs> way of segueing to you um, because we didn't get to hear from you I after know. the earnings report. No. Darn good day for those shares. Yeah, it was finally. a good day. I know, I know. But it, you know how you asked me like the other day, oh, is Intel finally in the clear? And I said I was kind of meh for a while and then finally was. Uh, that's how I am with Disney now. There's still a lot of wood to chop here. Um, but I think our takeaway from what was the most interesting on the earnings call was the granularity where they're like breaking out ESPN. They provided a 25 page explanation of earnings and their strategy. And we think that really probably is influenced by Nelson Peltz. So I think of, of all the wins from this quarter, not resting on the laurels of being like, oh, we're Disney, we're just going to tell you how it's doing and we're not going to do the hard work of breaking it out. I think the big win was them waking up and saying we really need to tell the shareholders with granularity what's going on. Um, so, you know, our thesis is, is intact, which is that the theme parks are trading at such a low price, you know, as if the whole company is based just on the theme parks, as if everything else has no value. And the reality is, is earnings growth should be decent coming up. Ah, this is a perfect segue. So here's what expectations for Disney's earnings growth are, right? It's 19 plus 19 percent in 24, 21 percent in 25, 21 percent in 26, because the base is so low. And you assume those are accurate. Right. But you know what? What if they're cut in half? If they're cut in half, you still have a stock that's trading really cheap where there's no expectations. Nobody likes it. It's a hate fest. It keeps reminding us over and over of this time exactly last year when we were defending Meta and everyone wanted to hate Meta and dismiss it and think nothing was actually going to come and the cost cuts weren't going to work. So we're like, you know what? It's bottomed out. It's cheap. It's got earnings growth. If they don't make it, the expectations are so low. The margin of safety, sorry to use the word so much, is so huge. Like, I'm really comfortable sitting here for another year. All right. Are you comfortable with Schwab? Um, yes. Which is also back to you. Named top pick today at Deutsche. The target gets cut by a dollar. 
right. from 67 to 66. We think Schwab shares will continue to grind higher into year end. Right. So totally in line with that. And I think this one's really interesting where where Deutsche Bank has Schwab at $5.29 of earnings next year, or sorry, in 2025. So it's trading at 10 times 2025 expectations, 14 times next year. That whole cash sorting that happened right in the wake of SVB, where people took all their money out of their 0% money market funds and put it into the high yield money market funds, and that hurt Schwab, that is completely tamed, completely chilled out. Here's another one. You know what earnings growth is expected to be for 24? 21%. 2025 is expected to be 28%. The stock's trading at 10 or 14 times. Like, I'd much rather that math working in my favor than 10 or 11 times, sorry, 10 or 11% earnings and 30 times multiple. What about so, X, what about XPO? Oh Top my gosh. pick at JPM. I'm in the uh, hot seat here. Rating overweight, target goes to 88. You own that one. We own that one. So we trimmed this a little while ago, a couple weeks ago at 75. So they're less than truckload. And so while there might, if we look at peers, if we look at FedEx, if we look at um, UPS and what kind of that data is looking like, there could be pressure for less than truckload. But in the case of XPO, we think they more than offset the LTL, less than truckload demand with, with volume gain. And they're taking share from yellow as that's sorting out. So here you have a stock that's up 143%. The free cash flow yield, because this is in our growth portfolio, so we look at free cash flow yield, is only 3%. This is much more likely to be a source of funds for us than an ad. Okay. Why? So you used to own XPO. You bought more GXO. Yeah. So I made a mistake selling XPO. Management. Hold on. No, what? Can you say that again? Uh, I made a mistake selling XPO. <laughs> Wait. Uh, I bought it. I bought it. I, I made money on it. My concerns on it were the freight environment. Obviously, the benefit from yellow freight, but management is excellent. I mean, Brad Jacobs, who founded yeah, XPO, founded GXO, mm -hmm. just did a phenomenal job grooming, training, and bringing along these execs in both companies. I added to GXO, they reported earlier this week, and it was a phenomenal quarter. Keep in mind that 95% of the 3PL network of warehouses has no automation whatsoever. GXO is 50% automated. They continue to pick up tremendous market share. The pipeline continues to grow. They beat this quarter. They narrowed the guidance for the next quarter to the upside. So I think that the stock is, is compelling here. I also add to Goldman. Goldman, I much prefer to Schwab. The reason being is um, Schwab management's fine, but I've gotten to know Goldman management pretty well. I think David Solomon is doing a tremendous job. Went in some areas that they shouldn't have gone into and was very quick to say, hey, let's turn around those weren't right for us. But more importantly, they're spring-loaded for just amazing earnings growth once the market's open. The pipeline that they have, that Morgan Stanley has, that all the investment banks have, that Schwab doesn't have, is just incredible sure, but pipeline I mean, of high-margin business. Comparing the two is like comparing apples and oranges, though. Well, they're both, they're both essentially... <laughs> I, I, they are. I'm not you're saying right. one. Like you're right. One, they're in, I'm not saying both. one one good versus one <laughs> right. bad. I'm it's saying different, different. But they're both in versus right. Totally but they're different both company. financial services companies, right? That's undeniable. I prefer the one that has a huge pipeline of high margin business rather than the one that is just in the spotlight, right? Like all these others are for seeing how many free services they have. You think so, Goldman's not in the spotlight more than Schwab? You didn't listen to my entire sentence, did you? <laughs> Right. For Schwab, is, right. Schwab is selling ETFs, no commission. Schwab, Schwab is selling, um, you know, trading, no commission. Goldman is selling IPOs and merger advice, high, high commission. 
That's this the difference. Is, all right. Schwab benefits from balances, just like Goldman does. And so have, I'm not saying Schwab's it's a bad company. No I'm saying there's much more juice in a Goldman or a Morgan Stanley than there is in and a And I would argue there's much more consistency and predictability in a Schwab. All right, Pippa Stevens, the headlines, please. Hey, Scott. Well, the Rafa border crossing is open again today. A spokesperson for Egypt said an estimated 600 foreign nationals are expected to cross. So far, more than 3,800 people have been able to leave Gaza, including more than 400 U.S. citizens. An estimated 7,500 foreigners were in Gaza at the start of the war. House Republicans are expected to announce a stopgap spending measure tomorrow to avert a partial government shutdown when funding runs out next Friday. The new House Speaker Mike Johnson has spent days negotiating with his slim majority. Republicans are divided. Some are calling for a measure that would run through mid-January and wouldn't include any cuts or policies that Democrats oppose. Hardline conservatives are pushing against that. And independent film company A24 is developing a biopic about Elon Musk that will be directed by Oscar nominee Darren Aronofsky. A source tells NBC News the project will be based on Walter Isaacson's recent biography of the SpaceX and Tesla tycoon. It's not clear yet who will portray Musk. Scott, back to you. This could be an interesting task. (laughs) Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. All right, coming up, crude crushed again. Oil pacing for its third straight down week. We'll find out where the committee stands on the energy trade next in our chart of the day. Halftime report is back right after this. That's not exactly our chart of the day, but we could easily make it because look at that. Nice little move here in the S&P 500, which is once again, Josh, making that run at 4,400. What a difference, you know, a day makes because it was, I don't know, you know, almost 24 hours when yields shot up and stocks shot lower. And we were wondering about, you know, okay, this Treasury, you know, funding the deficit story is is messy. And here we are. Here we are. Mega cap tech today. Um, Apple above 185. Microsoft new all time high today. Meta up more than two percent. Nvidia, Josh, up near two and a half percent. That stock was you remember when the stock was at 400 bucks because it wasn't that long ago. And here we are at 480. Yeah. Look, I, I think I think Steve, Jenny, and and Shannon would agree with this statement. Uh, but I, I, I've met thousands and thousands of investors over the years, and one of the most common mistakes that all investors make, professionals too. So I don't I don't mean to say this is um, exclusively uh, a retail investor thing. Is just this idea that you have to have a response to every move in the market. So whatever went on yesterday. Like, you didn't have to have an answer to it. You, you could have just said, okay, that's no fun, whatever. I'm, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then today, it's like a, a whole other picture. Look, uh, S&P, S&P 500, we know what it's being driven by. But when you see the biggest stocks with the biggest market caps making new highs, like you just referenced with Microsoft, um, there's not always meaning in that. But sometimes there is. And I think the meaning in that this year 
is that we've had a pretty big earnings contraction for a lot of companies. The companies that haven't really experienced that are the new leadership group, and that's NVIDIA, that's Microsoft. Say whatever you want about S&P earnings, but these companies were pretty immune. And that's really, to me, one of the biggest uh, stories of 2022. Uh, yes. Shan, just, just give me your thoughts. Again, I just want to note as we you know, get closer to that, what is a key level? I mean, l let's, let's be honest. I mean, 4,400, if you can get back above there compared to where we were just a, you know, a few weeks back and the, the concerns that we had. And last week, many of those were wiped away. A blip yesterday, of course, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate what Josh said. I mean, if you think about, you know, Q4 earnings estimates, you know, right now, uh, at least through Friday, there's only three sectors, Scott, that have seen upward revisions in earnings estimates for the fourth quarter, energy, materials, and technology. So I think what, what you're experiencing is that, you know, we're looking at 4,400. We're looking at a, at a market that coming out of August, September, and October, um, was very much focused on what was happening in the bond market. It will continue to have some volatility, but that 4,400 level, you know, I think that's where people really look at the market and go, okay, if we end the year at that level, that feels comfortable to me in terms of my positioning. I want to be positioned for that type of level. But again, going into 2024, you know, our, you know, the caution that we've talked about, and you press me on this all the time, is not for the overall market. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's this translation of a reversion or rotation back to a, a more cautious stance. And, um, you know, I think that whether or not the uh, larger tech stocks are vulnerable to that, how much multiple compression are they vulnerable to, I think will have a lot to do um, with their continued earnings growth. And, and that may provide them that cushion. I mean, you know, Jenny, it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, the, the cautious are going to remain cautious and the bullish are going to remain bullish. <laughs> and there is nothing, at least right now, to crack either side. And that's kind of the environment that we're in. But the market activity, particularly again today, would suggest don't overcomplicate what we're doing. Maybe, yeah. You can argue that, well, I don't like the rally because it's narrow, but that doesn't get you anywhere except losing money. That's the problem. And I think that's why you stay invested. You know, whatever you're in, you stay invested. And it's so easy to want to swap into bonds now, swap into cash now, get cute now. But I think, I think to your point exactly, you know, don't fight it. Whether you're in a dividend income portfolio, a discipline growth portfolio, like a large cap tech, like just stick with what you've got. Don't try and be cute. I was working on my client Christmas cards and I started writing to people like, and may 2024 be easier to navigate? Because this year has been really, really, really hard to navigate. And it's been really emotionally distressing to people. Anyone who's not up as much as the market feels like an idiot. You know, a lot of people are still riding down 30% off, off of their losses from last year. They feel stupid. And so my hope is that, you know, it goes back to the beginning of the show. J-Pal buys some time. We get some clarity. We have something next year that just, I don't know another word for it, that just gives us more clarity and confidence. All right, Mike Santoli, he'll join us next with his midday word. Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, has joined the desk. 
Here we go again. We're going to make another run at this. It looks like it. Um, market making a bid to kind of portray yesterday's action as a, as a little shakeout. Um, it, it was conspicuous how... I think sensitive folks were to the stuff that wasn't working in the market, even as the S&P went sideways for a few days. Uh, small caps delivered no faith whatsoever. Uh, the regional banks, all the problem areas remain that way. Um, but yields, you know, even after the 30-year auction yesterday, they never got above Monday's highs. You know, if you think about uh, where we've been recently in, uh, in that area. So, yep, got to ride the big ones to, to see if you get through 4,400. Yeah. <laughs> The yield thing is is interesting um, because now now we're 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 parsing not only the words of the Fed chair but now we're what was his tone more stern? Yeah, it's like the it takes the the briefcase Greenspan thing to a whole new right. level because we showed you at the top of the show what the words were versus the words on November first. Oh yeah, 1st, and there absolutely. Was, there's really no difference. It's just well he. But, Tone sounded different. There was no difference except that there wasn't uh, 50 minutes of Q&A where he could act off a little, offer a little more of a, of a kind of a good cop, nuanced take on things. Also, the market response since the, the Fed meeting, you know, is, gives you the setup for how you're going to interpret what he said yesterday. I, I think it's smart to just feel like Fed wants to be done. Fed's probably done unless something weird happens. Um, not going to look to cut very soon. To me, the long end has to you know, absorb whatever supply it is. But other than that, um, I think we can take it as the Fed doesn't want to really undercut this economy in a, in a determined way. All right, I'll see you on closing bell. That's Mike Santoli. We'll see him in just a bit. Up next, we've got big moves in crypto. We've got big moves in crude. We're going to discuss both. Welcome back. Let's talk crypto. Let's talk crude. We're talking crypto, Weiss. There's uh, Bitcoin, 37K. You bought more. I did today? buy more. I bought more multiple times this week. Um, BlackRock came out, and they're uh, trying to get an ETF into the market, Ethereum. Uh, I think you can see more and more of that. Let's go back to the case that was won by a, a company that is looking to and is launching an ETF. So, again, I don't believe in the, in the business use case or the consumer use case for crypto. Completely think it's, it's non-existent. You're just riding the momentum here towards an ETF and that's it? Exactly. I'm riding purely supply-demand characteristics and that there's going to be, there are enough true believers out there. Again, I'm definitely not one. I'm on the other side that are continue to come into this mm -hmm. asset class because it is an asset class and drive it higher. So that's why I'm there. That ride's going to go on for a while, so I would probably add to it again. Okay. Josh, you, you still own some Bitcoin and Ether? Yeah, we have, uh, we have Bitcoin, we have ETH, and uh, we got out of all the other old stuff like a long time ago. I'm with Steve. This is just about what other people are going to do. There's nothing fundamental going on here. Maybe someday, but it's 15 years and counting and uh, nothing yet. So that's the story. Yeah. Jenny, what about crude? Um, it's really been stunning what's happened to crude prices and energy stocks, and you, you have a fair amount of them. Yeah, I think we need to change the way we think about investing in energy. So we had this huge move, right, and I mean, huge move in terms of the energy indexes, which were up, what, 50% in 2020, 
won, you know, 60% last year, down 5% this year. I don't know if you all remember this, but earlier in the year, in the very beginning, I sold Chevron. I sold Chevron at 178, waited a little while, reinvested it in Pioneer. But the majority of the portfolio that I own is actually in the um, infrastructure space, in the pipeline space. So enterprise products, energy transfer, Kinder Morgan, One Oak. And those have had much more tame and frankly positive returns. And I like the idea of kind of shifting there on the U.S. side where where I don't think you're as exposed to the underlying commodity because we've been talking about this a lot. And I think my guess is that crude kind of sticks in the 75 to 85 range. There's not huge upside there. So just get, get the cash flow producers. All right. We'll uh, take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades. Got the Dow's good for 265. S&P about four points or so away from 4,400. We're back right after this. All right, there's the S&P. Weiss, we got about, well, we were in like within a point, almost a point and a half. We've a few points away here, but, uh, you know, what a difference a couple of weeks makes, huh? It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the violent move upward matches the violent move downward. Uh, let's not forget that. So we're recovering lost ground and maybe a little more. As I said, I think the momentum can continue definitely for Monday and then Tuesday, Wednesday, we get into inflation. Give me a quick final trade. Bitcoin. Momentum's there. I'm just riding it. Okay, Jenny. I'm staying on theme two. New York Community Bank, six times earnings, seven and a half percent dividend yield. Next year, earnings start to grow by 12 percent. Josh. Live Nation consolidating since July. I think she's going to run into year end. All right, Shan. Consumer staples. They could expand their margins next year on on continued high volumes. All right. I'll see you guys next week. I'll see you all in the closing bell. Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.